Hello, how are you doing? Um, so yes, we are here with the Shadow Chancellor and we're gonna talk about uh, her policy brief and we're gonna put to her some of the questions that readers have submitted uh, over the last few days. Thank you so much for submitting all of those. They've been great. Um, I'm going to kick off by uh, talking about um, kind of the new approach under the new leadership. So uh, Keir Starmer has been pursuing quite a remarkably different strategy to the, the Jeremy Corbyn era. Uh, the new Labour Party has really been hammering home messages about competence and that's been showing some movement in the polls on kind of which party is most uh, competent and talking about patriotism, uh, engaging with kind of usually hostile media publications um, and really prioritizing message discipline among front benches. But of course, the other part of all of that puzzle is Scotland and the need to win back seats there. So you've been in Scotland over the past few days, haven't you? So can you tell us a bit about what, what you were doing up there and what you kind of gather as the impression right now among voters? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, Sienna, it's so fantastic to be here. Thanks ever so much for the invite and really terrific to be with so many Labour members just like me who read Labour List every day uh, when it's out. So yeah, really, really great to be here. Um, and yeah, thanks for asking about Scotland. So it was the, the last place that I visited. I've been all around uh, the component parts of the UK over August, really talking to people about the problems affecting them. And you know, I think it's very interesting when we look at Scotland, obviously we're facing a huge unemployment crisis right across the UK, what I call Johnson's jobs crisis. I mean, it, obviously we were gonna have some impact from the public health measures on unemployment, but we're having much more significant an impact in the UK than in many other countries. And actually in Scotland, the level of unemployment is actually higher than in the rest of the UK. There was already a higher level of economic inactivity as well, lower small business confidence, lots and lots of people really concerned about the future. And I think there's actually a lot of potential for Labour in Scotland. I know that we're in very, very challenging circumstances, obviously. Um, I mean, we're in a situation, and I'm not saying this to, to make a joke of it, it's not funny at all, of course, but we are in a situation where there's a leader who's different from Boris Johnson in charge of government in Scotland. That does make it harder because people can see in England quite how appallingly poorly Johnson is dealing with this crisis. But again, in Scotland, actually, you look at testing, for example, which is far behind where it needs to be. You look at care home deaths, really, really worrying statistics there about what's been happening. You know, this has not been uh, a case of perfectly dealing with the crisis that we're in in Scotland. So I really think that, you know, if we can take our message to people throughout Scotland, then hopefully we will start to be performing better there. I mean, looking at Scotland, I mean, there was a kind of prime example today, Richard Leonard was talking about a national care service, something that Labour's talked about cross country. And later in the day, Nicola Sturgeon did announce that they were considering, you know, they were going to take that first step towards a national care service. So a, a lot of the things that Labour calls for, the SNP then takes on board. And even though they've had all these crises during COVID, her personal ratings are, are really good. And a lot of that, as you said, is about looking at her next to the shambles that is Boris Johnson. So what does Labour do about yeah. that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right, Sienna. And actually, it was interesting that the very day when I was in Edinburgh to talk to people who run the, the arts festival there, of course, the biggest arts festival in the world, 
that very day after a very long time of saying nothing about when they were going to provide additional arts funding, the Scottish Government finally made an announcement. So I think you're absolutely right that they're constantly thinking, you know, it's, it's Labour who's their key opposition rather than, than the Conservatives, you know, even given um, the polling situation that we have currently. Um, how do we deal with it? I think that a, we need to show that we're on the side of working people, that we're really standing up for those being impacted by this jobs crisis. But I think, B, you know, we need to show that we are the only ones who can move beyond what I've called the Barney, right? The Barney between Johnson in London on the one hand and Sturgeon in Edinburgh and the two of them so often blaming each other. You know, we've seen that coming from both sides actually recently. Uh, you know, Rishi Sunak um, kind of glibly pointing out the amount of money that Scotland's provided with. And then you have on the other hand, the SNP just criticizing London when there are many things they could be doing actually, but it's just easier to criticize London rather than to get on with it. You know, I think Labour can show that we're above all of that. We're not part of the Barney. We are there for working people to try and make sure their concerns are center stage, not this partisan knockabout that's so frustrating. Mm. Um, before you took on the role under Keir Starmer, you were working under John McDonnell in the Treasury, in the Shadow Treasury team. So that's quite an interesting kind of transition that you've made because you've kind of seen both eras and how, how the different, you know, styles work and the different kind of operations. So what are the things from, from that time, from working under John McDonnell, policy-wise and style-wise, style that do you think you'll be taking forward in your new role as Shadow Chancellor? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting that, that for all of us, you know, whether um, you know, people are, are full-time politicians or working in other areas, I mean, it, it feels like everything's changed, doesn't it? Because of the context, the fact that we've all had to meet remotely for those of us who have the luxury that we can work from home. Of course, many don't. Um, really, the whole structure of work has changed. So I think it's, it's quite difficult to make a direct comparison, really, between those two periods. Um, I would say also, and in fact, um, John has, has mentioned this, I think that in this situation of obviously national crisis, people have been looking to Labour to be a constructive opposition, to point out where there are solutions. And my goodness, we need a lot of them, given the mess that this government's making of both the public health response and the economic side increasingly as well. So I think it's very hard to, to make that comparison. Um, uh, you know, certainly I, I'm very keen to work with all parts of the party, continue doing that, because I think our, you know, our unity is our strength, our membership is our strength as well. Yeah, well, I was going to say, actually, it's interesting that the shadow, your shadow treasury team now, it's a really diverse team politically. You've got kind of Dan Cardin, Pat McFadden, Wes Streeting. How does that work? Are there any tensions over kind of how bold Labour's policy intervention should be or the kind of style that's preferred by different people? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say let's not miss out Bridget and Avena as well and, and uh, our brilliant whips. Uh, so it, it's a fantastic mix of people, actually. And um, I suppose, yes, we could say coming from slightly different traditions within the Labour Party, coming from different parts of the country as well, which is really, really helpful with different kinds of experience before they came into politics. Um, it's been brilliant, actually, genuinely. Um, it's been a challenging time, obviously, because we can't, 
be together in the way that normally a team would be physically. Um, but certainly I've absolutely loved working with all of them. They've got immediately stuck in. Um, you know, obviously this is this is a really daunting time, absolutely enormous challenges, you know, biggest recession in 300 years, but they've all stepped up to the plate really magnificently. So I'm very, very pleased with my team. I don't want anyone to change it. I want it to stay exactly how it is. So is your team, are you going to planning to kind of work from Westminster from now on? Are you changing how you're working as kind of restrictions ease? Yeah, so, so we're adopting, um, I suppose, a, a mixture of different approaches. Um, obviously, we've got now that hybrid system uh, that we're working to, um, and people will know Labour's criticisms around that and why, um, you know, the government seems to be adopting, uh, you know, has been adopting um, for some time quite a dogmatic approach to some of this. Um, but ultimately, you know, we're, we're working together, making sure that everyone has a, a safe space, um, to work in. I think that's really, really important um, and doing all that we can to ensure that we have outreach you know, across parliamentary Labour Party, our trade union colleagues as well, different other stakeholders and of course our members too. I, yeah, I was wondering just because there was obviously that briefing last week um, to, to newspapers basically saying, you know, go to back to the office or you could face the sack because basically your employer won't care about you as much because they've only seen you over zoom and not in real life and obviously there are those disadvantages because you kind of miss the camaraderie and that sort of thing but at the same time it's actually been quite useful and worked pretty well for a lot of businesses so I'm kind of interested in how you kind of what you thought of that briefing it was quite hostile and threatening to workers. Absolutely. I completely agree with you, Sienna. I mean, first of all, it missed out the fact that huge numbers of workers, of course, have been going out to work. They haven't had any choice, even in those situations where we've had rising infection rates, they've been going to work. And very often it's the worst paid, of course, and most precariously employed people who've been having to go into the workplace. Um, but secondly, it completely missed the fact that any decent employer should be ensuring, you know, for example, it said, oh, there are mental health problems for people working from home. Well, a decent employer should be making sure that their employees have provision to help to protect their mental health at this time. They should be making sure that those working arrangements are appropriate ones. And actually, if they have staff, for example, staff who are clinically extremely vulnerable, they're being told by government on the one hand that they should be sympathetic towards them. But then on the other hand, we have this kind of one size fits all rhetoric coming down saying that, well, literally every single person has to be going back into their former workplace at the same time. Again, no provision apparently being made by government to help to coordinate people attending work at different times, more flexible work patterns, et cetera. Um, so I think that, that word threatening that you used is the key one here. And you know, to me, what we need to be focused on is promoting our economic capacity and dealing with the public health crisis and doing both at the same time, not suggesting that they're in opposition to each other. Mm, I think that's kind of putting on a thread that's really interesting and key to your role going forwards probably is that COVID has had this massive, terrible impact on the economy and a lot of people's lives and a lot of people are grieving and a lot of people are hurting. At the same time, a kind of moment of crisis is a moment to kind of maybe take a step back and think there are some things that weren't working already and flexible working, especially for women, for instance, or people with disabilities or people with caring responsibilities, 
those things could actually change permanently for the future. Mm. No, I think that's right. I mean, as, as we do that kind of reflection, of course, I think we need to always be cognizant of the impact for those who were dependent on the previous status quo, of course, you know, all those people whose um, jobs depended on, uh, you know, very high footfall in city centres with um, uh, very high density offices, for example, of course, they're being hit very hard by this. But I think you're right, this is a moment of reflection um, around people's working practices, around our ability to tackle the climate crisis. I'm sure that's something that we will come on to in the, in the questions later on, if, if not now, um, around how much we value different kinds of work as well. Um, you know, people finding out about some of the really appalling conditions that many social care workers have operated in for a long time, for example, and that being news to many people. Um, so I do think, yes, it's a moment of reflection and one that really shouldn't be squandered. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about the climate crisis now. I mean, it's kind of like we always talk about a just transition for workers, right, in terms of a Green New Deal. It's really important that you bring workers with you, that you don't leave people behind, like with the deindustrialization. So some of that kind of now even applies more broadly uh, because of the COVID crisis. So not even just in terms of transitioning to green jobs, but, but generally to a post-COVID economy. So what are the kind of things that Labour's proposing around a Green New Deal and that at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think first, I suppose there are three areas really where we've been calling on government to do far, far more. First of all, um, there is the need for a far stronger green stimulus than what government is so far committed to. Um, people probably remember that Boris Johnson made an announcement about investment with lots of bells and whistles before the uh, summer parliamentary break. Well, actually, if you look at what he committed to for environmentally friendly investment, that only amounted to just about what Germany's spending on just one environmentally friendly technology just on hydrogen. So we're well behind where many other countries are when it comes to that investment. Obviously bad for the UK's economic strength, but really bad for jobs as well, where we're going to be losing out over the long term. So that's an area where we really, really need a change. Secondly, we do need to have much more of a focus on this when it comes to the future of those economic support packages. I'm sure that we'll again talk about this later on, but we think it's an enormous mistake, a historic mistake to be removing that job retention scheme support across every part of the economy at exactly the same time. If you look at sectors like um, aviation, for example, aerospace, uh, parts of manufacturing, actually, if you have targeted wage support, along with training support as well, and you have a strategic government, unlike the one that we have currently, which is so allergic to intervention, then you can make sure that you're orienting and working with business to ultimately uh, make the best of the green revolution that's necessary. So there are two areas. Um, and then we would say, finally, when it comes to uh, general economic spending, particularly investment, Again, the government has been unwilling to apply environmental conditionality to the support that it's providing to different companies. Again, that's out of step with what's happening with many other countries. We think that government should be using this moment to say to companies that they need to be reducing their carbon footprint into the future when they're benefiting from public funds. And there are other things that they need to do as well if they're benefiting from public funds around the way they treat their staff, the way they preserve employment, the way that they contribute to the UK by not pulling out money and dividends and so forth. But environmental conditionality has got to be part of this too. 
So, I mean, there, yeah, so there are, there's environmental conditionality, imposing those conditions on uh, bailouts, but also is Labour still supportive of the idea of uh, public sector stakes in companies, for instance, in the aviation industry, that's something that some activists have really strongly been calling for to kind of make sure that they keep on track and that we have a stake in that project. Well, absolutely. And obviously I've worked with um, Ed Miliband around this as our shadow base secretary. Um, and we're very clear, you know, government shouldn't be taking an ideological approach to this. And yet it seems to. So it seems to be um, unwilling to countenance having that kind of equity role. Actually, it applies also when we look at their approach to um, small business lending uh, and medium-sized business lending where um, they've not said what's going to happen if companies aren't able to be paying back. Now, actually, some of the, um, fact, interestingly, some of the voices in the City of London have said, well, look, we need to have a different approach to this, you know, longer repayment term, this kind of thing, just not willing to look at it. We think that's quite a dogmatic way of um, looking at these matters. Instead, we need to be focused on what's gonna be best for jobs in the UK in the future and currently while we have such an intense unemployment crisis. Well, I was, I was gonna ask, um, so there's this jobs, Johnson's jobs crisis, it's difficult to say. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you've wrestled with that this summer. Um, uh, so this is like the major issue for the Labour Party and for the country at the moment. Obviously, a lot of people, and it's kind of reflected in polling, it seems like they're kind of like, oh, well, benefit of the doubt, you know, this is unprecedented, it's really difficult for any government to deal with, and really basically letting the government off the hook, to some extent, about how they're handling this. How can Labour respond to that, make sure it cuts through without looking basically ungrateful, which is kind of a narrative that's developed, but also what is the government actually doing wrong in terms of that jobs crisis? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. And of course, um, I've always tried to be clear when I'm talking about this, that Labour was calling for many of the measures that the government then eventually put into place, along with the trade union movement and others. So around the furlough scheme itself, I mean, obviously, we were calling for a more flexible approach to that from the very beginning and something that would enable part time working from the beginning. But we did call for that. Um, same with support for the self-employed as well. Same with support for small businesses. So, um, you know, we're not going to say that those measures were inappropriate. They weren't. Um, you know, if anything, they came in, you know, quite slowly, but we're not going to criticise them being there. But the really critical time, of course, is now. It's right now that many employers are making decisions about whether they're going to be able to keep staff on. Um, we can directly trace waves of redundancies now coming through in relation to those cliff edges, particularly in the job retention scheme. We're starting to see that coming through. That should be a wake up call to government. And we've been saying this to them. Now, of course, Tories then try and mix characterize our position and say, well, um, you know, you just want to keep the furlough scheme exactly as it is forever. That's not affordable. Well, nobody's saying that we want to keep it as it is you know, applying to, uh, you know, currently 7 million people exactly as it is in the future, that would not be sensible. But do we need a targeted scheme like operates in many other countries? Yes, we do. Yeah, we actually did uh, some 
a piece and a bit of research on what other European countries are doing. And it looks like a lot of them are extending their furlough schemes uh, for, you know, months and years ahead. And they're kind of recognizing that you don't want that cliff edge because it's going to have a devastating impact. And we've seen that with our GDP figures already. And October hasn't even come yet. So Labour is saying it wants this sectoral approach, isn't it? So it's saying those hardest hit sectors tourism, hospitality, they need more support still uh, through the, the furlough scheme and that should be extended in those targeted areas. So under Labour's plan, what would that furlough scheme look like? Because it's kind of tapering off, isn't it? So what? how would that work if Labour were in power, say next month? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a, a, a great thought if we if we were in, in many ways, given what's happening otherwise in the country. I mean, uh, the whole scheme currently is set to finish um, at the beginning of October. Um, obviously, also similar developments for the self-employed support scheme. Also, um, we think what governments should be doing is what they keep claiming credit for at the very beginning of that scheme, which is that they worked with trade unions and businesses to come up with a sensible solution. They should be doing that now when it comes to the job retention, the furlough scheme and the self-employed scheme. They should be sitting down, working out for the different sectors that are particularly heavily impacted, what kind of system of wage support is going to be necessary to maintain economic activity, to preserve economic capacity and above all to keep people in work. And I think this is more of a problem actually for the UK than many other countries because we have a really low rate of vacancies, worryingly, coming back into the jobs market, if we saw really strong growth in vacancies, then I suppose potentially some might say, well, there's an argument actually for, you know, enabling people to leave their current job, move into another one, but there just isn't a match in the numbers now. That does mean we need to help people keep that link to the current employer. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about Rishi because he's kind of become this phenomenon and obviously he he's the person that you're your opposite and he apparently has you know personal brand manager a uh, sort of young guy who's kind of controlling his social media making sure that he comes across kind of really slick are you ever tempted to kind of put on a hoodie and release some photos of you looking kind of geek chic on the internet <laughs> I think I'd probably be more of the geek and a bit less of the chic, to be honest. You know, if I went down that route and uh, can reassure Labour list readers that I certainly don't have a, a brand manager, you know, I think it's quite important um, in politics to be very honest, open and, and transparent. And, you know, I, I really, I, I would say, derive, I, I guess, strength and ideas and support from talking to, you know, people like those who are, who are watching this. You know, I think if you act always as, as an individual and you, you don't work with others, I think that's really problematic actually. So it's a really personalized approach. I, I don't think it's helpful. Um, uh, so yes, maybe I can I can reassure people a little bit on, on that front, um, uh, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, there, there are constantly these kind of, these rumors and a kind of analysis saying that um, there's this idea that Rishi might take over as Tory leader because Boris Johnson, uh, you know, kind of looks, a bit tired I mean he has been genuinely ill over the kind of Covid crisis and that's obviously really difficult for him and at the same time it looks like there's just not that kind of coordination uh, tying together government ministers messaging all the time and on things like office returns for instance it's just kind of seems all over the place and that there's mm. not enough leadership from the top and that Tories are basically ruthless and I think John McDonnell actually was saying this recently that Labour definitely needs to 
make sure that its messaging can apply to all Tories and all ministers, whoever is leader, and not just Boris Johnson, because actually they're so ruthless, they would kick him out and maybe replace him with Rishi. How kind of worried do you think the left should be about that prospect? Well, I, I certainly think that this uh, chaotic, sadly, and in many cases, handling of the public health crisis and increasingly the wrong response to the economic crisis, that it's deeply rooted in the whole of the Conservative Party, unfortunately. Um, you know, a, a, an unwillingness to work with um, those public authorities who would actually be part of the solution. So taking so long to actually work with public health functions around testing, you know, only starting to get that sorted out now. Enormous contracts being provided to outsourcers, which then simply don't deliver. And as I was just talking about, a complete unwillingness to really engage with the kind of work with businesses and trade unions that's necessary to provide uh, support for jobs. So, you know, I think this is fairly traditional conservative stuff, you know, just that unwillingness to really sort out the problems because of their ideology. So, you know, it's something that applies, unfortunately, across the piece. And, and I think you're right, you know, we need to make sure that every single conservative minister is feeling the heat around all of those failings because they are collective failings and they're having a direct impact on enormous numbers of people in our country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, okay, this messaging around incompetence, I think it, it works really well with Boris Johnson because he's so clearly incompetent. Being on top of the detail has never been his thing. It's been broad brushstrokes about get Brexit done or whatever. It's it's more of an election campaign style than a, a, a kind of governing suited to governing. Um, but Rishi Sunak, at the dispatch box, he is super confident, he's eloquent, he, he speaks very well and very clearly in a way that Boris Johnson doesn't. I mean, do you think we should be worried about him taking over specifically? And, and do you think that kind of incompetence message will work just as well if he does? I mean, I think we're currently in a situation where many people have been supported by those measures that I was talking about. And indeed, as I said, the measures that, that Labour supported. But the wrong decisions are being taken now, or in many cases, no decision being taken, even when an enormous problem is coming at us very, very speedily. I mean, we've seen just one example um, would be around what seems to be delayed introduction of the Kickstarter scheme. Um, you know, when we were promised that really quite some time ago to help young unemployed people. Um, Rumours that there might be some changes around wage support, but it's taking months and months and months for that to be put in place. Meanwhile, huge numbers of people losing their jobs. So, you know, all the changes that are happening now feel like pulling teeth. You know, they feel like they're taking a very, very long time to put into place. So actually the slowness that I think has characterised our public health response is most definitely a feature of the economic response now as well. So it is really important that Labour's making that clear. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. And I think, um, yeah, something that Labour definitely needs to be bringing to the fore because it's just um, seems sometimes as if the Chancellor is getting away with kind of being the good guy uh, when actually their messaging uh, and their action is incredibly slow and confusing, as you're saying. There also seems to be some tension within government over whether to go for austerity on the one hand or increasing taxes uh, to pay for the COVID crisis. And obviously, often it's ignored the fact that the borrowing costs have hit 
kind of record lows and uh, th that's kind of missing from the conversation. But when we are having this conversation, a lot of the time, so the Tories, they would kind of have a wrong but very compelling argument for either more austerity or increasing taxes, wouldn't they? Because they'll say, you know, we've spent this unprecedented amount on unprecedented schemes like furlough. We've got to buckle down now. Do you think there is a good chance that the Tories are going to return to that kind of narrative? Or do you think they're a bit wary of that because it's it doesn't seem like the moment? I, mean, I think that's a really, really good question. Um, and I was doing question time some weeks ago with George Osborne, actually, and he said exactly what, what you maintained, you know, while the choice is just between those two elements around tax or spending. And I said, well, actually, there are two other really big choices. One is whether you can grow the economy, focus on that, and ultimately that will help to erode over time um, the significance of any debt for the public finances. But secondly, about the incidence of any measures that you might then impose. And of course, we know what happened since 2010. We know how um, the vast, well, certainly working people um, saw their income stagnate and only rise very, very slowly. And those um, at the very bottom really suffered because of those cuts to social security absolutely enormously with child poverty going up so substantially. So there are other choices here. Um, I mean, I, I find the current discussion a peculiar one. If I was the Chancellor, I would be focused right now on trying to prevent additional people becoming unemployed. Number one, that should be you know, what he should have written um, on the wall of his office. That's what he should be thinking about every single morning when he wakes up. How can I stop additional people becoming unemployed? Um, because ultimately, I mean, it's not just significant, of course, for those individuals because of the huge impact it has um, you know, on their uh, their mental health, on their personal circumstances, also on their earning ability. You know, it has that impact right throughout the life course if you've spent some time unemployed. But it has a huge impact on the public finances as well. Um, so it's extremely short-sighted, uh, I would say, for them to be already, it seems, engaging um, in that kind of uh, facile uh, debate when they should be focused on preserving employment. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like they've missed a kind of a few stages and they're slipping <laughs> forwards when actually we're just hitting the really bad part of this crisis. And one think tank put it really well when they said there was the risk of deep scarring. And that's kind of what people know from the Thatcher era is that scarring in their in their regional in their regions and their local areas from just, you know, industries just going down downhill in a very quick way in a very damaging way and and not actually having anything to replace that so I, I guess that is the, the main thing that's missing from the conversation um and I suppose it's what Labour's trying to address with the jobs campaign primarily isn't it absolutely and I, I mean I think you're completely right particularly that focus on different places and we're seeing um you know in some areas they're being extremely badly impacted by this. It's just not possible for people to find alternative work because the issues around vacancies that I mentioned, and we will see a very, very long-term impact unless this is addressed. We'll see those places struggling. We don't have the kind of rapid response approach coming from this government that we've seen under Labour in the past. We don't have the kind of task forces, for example, which would actually be working with those areas. We don't have the interaction with local authorities and Labour leaders that's needed um, to protect many of those areas. And obviously I've talked to a number of those 
labor leaders and they're really frustrated because they know what's needed in their locality to help to keep people in work, to actually help to encourage the provision of new jobs, new opportunities for people, but they're just not being listened to by central government at the moment. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk to you about a couple of specific policy things before we go to the, the readers' questions. Um, so at an event, this is something that Labour kind of caught some headlines on. So at an event in July, you, we were talking about how the government maybe should consider the use of wealth taxes to fund the recovery. And Dan Cardin was one of the people who was vocal on Twitter saying that uh, Labour was definitely looking at this and um, supportive of the idea. But since then, it seems that the party's backed away from that proposal because basically we should now be thinking about stimulus and not thinking about which taxes to increase. So do you want to give some kind of clarity around that uh, statement and what's the position currently on, on wealth taxes from the Labour Party? Sure. So I, th I think there's been kind of confusion, um, much of it egged on as we would anticipate by the, the right wing press, um, actually around the sequencing of this. So, um, you know, it, it's absolutely right that we as the Labour Party look into the whole panoply of taxation options. You know, I've always said that I'm very strongly in favour of a more progressive taxation system. I think it's absolutely appalling that the bottom tenth of people by income uh, actually pay more of that income in tax than the top 10%. That has got to change. Um, but our detailed proposals around taxation will be worked on just as they would be for any general election, right? So all of those precise details we will be working with members on. And obviously, I'll really look forward, hopefully, to having some more of these sessions with you, Sienna, and with others in the party and movement around what exactly those um, strategic choices are going to be in advance of the general election. Um, and but though the, the very um, uh, kind of immediate challenge right now really is about employment protection, as I said. So um, I think there was a bit of kind of mischief making, I would say, from the right wing press around this saying, oh, this is, this is exactly what Labour wants to focus on right now. Actually, we're saying, you know, in the long term, we need to have that developed policy process for the next general election. Absolutely right that we do that. But in the short term, we've got to be focused on protecting jobs and particularly helping those people who've already become unemployed. So at the moment, Labour basically doesn't want to be talking about tax increases because this is a kind of a question of timing because it's the wrong focus at the moment. Would that be a kind of fair summary? Because right now is not the time to be increasing any kind of taxes. Well, I think right now, as I said, government's focus should be on preventing additional unemployment. You know, we're already in a worse situation than many other countries. And ultimately, if we see more people becoming unemployed, then that base for taxation is going to be reduced and it's going to take it longer for us to return to economic capacity, whatever kind of a tax system we have. So, um, you know, as I said, my, my commitment to a more progressive tax system is, is well known. That's something that I really, really want to see. But right now, I want the government's feet to be held to the fire around their failures on preventing unemployment. I think that's really where they are letting people down right now. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, the digital services tax. So there have been these reports that the Treasury might be dropping the idea uh, because it could jeopardise a post-Brexit trade deal with the US. And of course, that's the most important thing, especially when uh, talks are going so badly with the EU. Um, and you said over the weekend that Labour actually, you know, it's important to support this and the kind of cost of dropping 
a digital services tax would be huge for, for key workers in particular. So what does what does Labour think about that at the moment? And also, what does Labour think about this, uh, this global solution that they're talking about? Because they're saying, well, even if we did have this, it would be temporary and then we'd move towards a global solution and drop it eventually anyway. Well, we, we've heard this claim that they're deeply engaged in seeking a global solution for a very, very long time. But every time that I've raised it, and I've done that a number of times in the House of Commons and elsewhere with government ministers asking for precise details about how they're trying to seek that global solution. We've had very, very little back, unfortunately. Um, and we really do need to see much stronger engagement. I mean, we, ultimately, an international solution would be positive because obviously we're talking about international companies here. You know, if we can get particularly the US and the EU to come to some kind of agreement about the taxation of so-called intangibles, um, uh, you know, uh, different forms of economic activity that are difficult to pin down. If they can come to that agreement, then that would be a positive thing, but it shouldn't prevent us from taking action now. And I think the really worrying thing about um, government's apparent position on the digital services tax is, you know, for all of its flaws, and it did have very many flaws, the digital services tax proposal, it was in a very small way, slightly leveling the playing field for those businesses that are based on our high streets, so those businesses based in bricks and mortar, where obviously they have to pay business rates regardless of how much um, profit they make. You know, it's a big, big problem for lots and lots of small businesses in particular. We're seeing the impacts of our, on our high streets of that right now. Um, and so it's not the time for government to be pulling out even of that limited measure to start to level up the playing field. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because obviously during the coronavirus crisis, uh, high streets have suffered and local businesses have suffered, but actually the people who've actually benefited from the, the way that we've changed our lives, uh, people like Amazon, they've, they've actually done better than usual um, and they're the ones who don't pay their taxes as well. I mean, do you think that this uh, kind of, this uh, desire to get close to Donald Trump uh, even though he might be out of office soon, is hampering or shaping our domestic fiscal policy already? Well, that whole um, discussion around the digital services tax suggested that it may already be having an impact. And, you know, that does really concern me. Um, I look, obviously, at the amount of trade that we have with other parts of the world, and we know where a majority of it is, and it's not with... The United States. I'm not going to say there can never be any improvement, but actually when you think through some of the potential regulatory impacts, some of the impacts on the quality of foods, obviously um, something that Labour has been really trying to get on the public agenda as much as possible, some of the impacts potentially on our public services as well from the kind of trade deal that the Conservatives seem to be pushing, I think that's something that would actually be quite damaging for our economy in the long run for very, very little economic benefit. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to put, because we've got so many questions, usually I only do this in 10-15 minutes, but we've got loads and loads of questions this time. Um, so I'm going to put some of these to you now. Um, so we've got our first one uh, is from Kerry Foster, who says, do you think Eat Out to Help Out did help to give people confidence to go out to restaurants? And do you think there are lessons the government can learn from it for other areas? 
Brilliant. Th thanks very much for that, Kerry. And I would say, Sienna, as well, if there's anyone who tried to ask a question and we don't have time to go through it, please do just drop me a line. Um, you know, I'd be delighted to hear from anyone on this call who doesn't have a chance to, to pose their question. Um, so, Kerry, I think that's a really, really interesting question. Um, we didn't oppose Eat Out to help out because we have been saying to government that you really need to do something to support the hospitality sector. Um, but I suppose I, I would say there, there are three really critical issues here. Number one, we actually need people to have confidence long term about going into restaurants and cafes. And the big problem right now is there's still quite a lot of people who are nervous about the public health situation, who don't feel the government's got a grip on test, track and trace. So they don't feel they can have confidence actually about going out to eat in the first place. So that really needs to be dealt with. That public health imperative has got to get sorted out before any kind of incentive mechanism is going to have the difference that it, it is going to make the difference, sorry, that it would need to make. Um, secondly, we do think that, again, we need to have a longer term perspective on many of these issues. Obviously, that measure has come to an end. Um, and yet we still see in many cases uh, catering hospitality industries um, struggling across the country. And then I would just say, finally, when I was um, going across the country and you know, I was talking to some of those who've been affected by localised restrictions, sorry about the background noise there, um, some of those who've been affected by those restrictions, you look at a place like Aberdeen, for example, um, restaurants, cafes there, they've only had three out of the 14 days of Eat Out to help out. And you know we've repeatedly been saying to government, you need to be clear about what support you'll provide during localised lockdowns, particularly for those firms that are heavily and companies that are heavily dependent on footfall and the kinds of things that are not necessarily possible during localised restrictions. Thank you. Um, Wanda asks, will Labour continue with John McDonald's policies, in particular the National Investment Bank with regional branches? And what do you think of the four day week? Great, thanks very much for that one. I mean, uh, that whole um, uh, policy imperative to drive up investment um, that obviously uh, John was focused on before that I worked with him on is still critically important. You know, the UK, as I said before, in terms of its investment plans, is doing less than many other countries, especially when it comes to green investment. Um, of course, we, we did have a green investment bank, but it was privatised by the Conservative government. We've now got a Scottish investment bank that's being created. Um, you know, obviously, the, the precise contours of Labour policy in this area into the next general election are going to be determined through that process that I was talking about a minute ago. Um, but certainly, I want us to be uh, really promoting um, any a good value for money measure that will drive up that investment that's so necessary, particularly in infrastructure to um, improve our, our climate performance. Um, on the four day week, I think that, uh, you know, I, there's been a lot of really great campaigning around the role that um, uh, so-called short hours working could play. So the kind of scheme that exists in Germany, for example, where um, you have people going into the workplace, um, they're working potentially fewer shifts, shorter hours than they would normally, but there's then a wage top up. Um, obviously, we've been encouraging government to look at that, well, demanding that they look at that, um, rather than this one-size-fits-all withdrawal of the furlough scheme. So we do think that they should be engaged in those debates and discussions. Um, I think at the same time, so we've got to be very aware of the fact that very many people 
are really suffering because their hours have been cut. You know, their time working has been cut. That's hit them really, really hard, given the poverty pay that so many people are on in our country. So we just need to make sure that we're not kind of mischaracterized on this issue. Um, we don't want people's pay to be reduced. That's already happening. It's not something we as a Labour Party would ever want to be calling for. Absolutely. I think that without loss of pay, uh, part of that policy sometimes got lost uh, last year, unfortunately. Um, Andrew uh, says, why has the pledge to increase tax for the top 5% been dropped? Um, so, Andrew, uh, you know, as I said before, I'm fully committed to a more progressive tax system. Um, Keir Starmer, when he became leader, uh, committed to that also. Um, uh, but I do think it makes sense that for the precise details of our tax plans that we will be working on those up to the time of the next general election. You know, I think that makes sense. We don't know what kind of a fiscal situation we're going to be in. But as I, as I said before, I'm fully committed to a more progressive tax system. We can't continue with the levels of really, really extreme inequality that are revealed through this crisis. Um, Clary on Twitter asks, excluded UK and the excluded APBG, I'm sure you know all about them, um, uh, are continuing to highlight the plight of approximately 3 million people who the Chancellor excluded from support, so the self-employed, those on parental leave, I know there's a big campaign uh, from uh, Pregnant Then Screwed about that as well, that's brilliant. They ask, uh, what will the Labour Party do to help us? Yeah, so th thanks to Clary for raising this. And as you'd anticipate, we've had um, you know, quite a lot of interaction with Excluded UK, but also with individual people who've been affected by this, um, different organisations that are representing them. And, and the first thing that I think we always need to underline when we talk about these um, people who've been excluded from the support schemes is that this is a particular problem in the UK because our social security system is such a mess. Um, obviously, Johnny was on a previous one of these Q&As, so I'm not going to rehearse everything that I'm sure that he said there. But we're in a situation where, um, I mean, there have been some changes now made to universal credit, albeit not uh, sufficient changes. But initially, at the beginning of this crisis, many people who became reliant on universal credit were dropping right down to just 10% of their previous income. We're still not in a situation where people's rental costs are covered. Obviously, we've argued for 50% of the LHA rate to be covered so that people aren't in that kind of a position, you know, a number of other changes that people will be aware of. So that's why this is such a big issue. If we didn't have this social security system currently that the Conservatives have put in place, then it wouldn't be so catastrophic not being part of one of these support schemes. But obviously we've repeatedly been saying to government, look, this computer says no response because that's what it's been like from government in relation to these groups. It's just not good enough. It's not good enough to say that it, you know, the need to create these schemes was urgent, um, you had to speedily create them and now you can't possibly change them. It is possible to deal with some of these categories of people with a fresh look at this, you know, HMRC has got, so tax authorities have got more capacity to be, for example, looking into people's tax returns, that would be one way of dealing with this. You know, government said to us, for example, well, this would be likely to increase fraud. So we said to them, well, if government really believes that, then why wouldn't they be doing more to investigate fraud and to have higher penalties for fraud? That would be the way to deal with it, not to penalise a huge number of people because you're concerned about it. So yes, there's a lot more that needs to be done to help people in those situations. 
absolutely. Um, this next one, uh, I feel that you might kind of, <laughs> um, uh, you probably get asked this a lot of the time by Labour members. I, I know that whenever I've ever said anything about MMT, I've been deluged with mentions. But um, so Joss, uh, who sits on the MPF, uh, says MMT, modern monetary theory, is attracting a lot of interest from Labour members. He's definitely right about that. Um, I see it raised in submissions to the National Policy Forum. What's your opinion on MMT and do its insights offer any pointers to future policy? Well, look, I, I'm always keen to, to talk to anyone, right? Anyone who's got interesting um, thoughts about our economic future. Um, I have to say around, I suppose, kind of pure MMT, um, you know, I have always asked, well, how is it really possible to do this within one country? Um, given how internationalised our economy is, wouldn't that have a negative impact? Wouldn't there be an impact on inflation in particular? Um, but, you know, I've always been open to have that discussion. Um, but I would also say that, you know, we're, we're currently in a situation where, um, you know, the Bank of England has been uh, loaning money to government, actually, uh, uh, already as part of the scheme that it is operating. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, as well as talking about the kind of overall quantum of money, I think we need to talk a, a lot more, really, about whether that money is going in the right place. You know, government has squandered um, many, many mil bil sorry, millions, <laughs> but probably adding up to the billions, actually, um, uh, of pounds on those major contracts that haven't been delivering. You know, we've had the suggestion, well, not just a suggestion, it's a policy um, that in January, a thousand pounds will be provided for every employee who's still in work, um, who is covered by the furlough scheme. That will mean a huge transfer to many businesses that actually don't need that money now. So um, yes, of course, let's have an open uh, discussion around financing in the first place, but let's also make sure that the Tories are held accountable, the Conservatives are held accountable for where they're spending money and why it isn't getting to where it needs to be. On a related note, someone uh, is asking you about, have you read The Deficit Myth? Uh, Michael asks by Stephanie Kelton. If so, what's your action? And if not, why not? <laughs> So I have a feeling that I've read bits of it, actually. I feel very bad saying this, but I've certainly been sent books uh, about MMT and, and related matters. And uh, the, the Positive Money Group in my constituency has, has sent me information. Um, I, I, you know, as I said, I, I, I still have concerns around particularly the, the international context um, uh, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go away after this and, and just double check that I have read um, uh, that particular book. So, so thanks for the heads up. Uh, someone else, they've got lots of book recommendations for you. Uh, someone else has said, have you read Donut Economics? That came up a few times in the questions, actually, uh, which is about sustainable development. Um, and John asked, would you consider taking forward the concept of do Donut Economics within the Labour Party? So that's about shifting the policy mm. outlook from GDP to kind of other sustainable development goals? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are there are a number of different elements of um, Kate Raworth's overall approach actually within that book. I think there are lots of really interesting insights in it. I'm very lucky because she's actually one of my constituents. So that's a really lovely thing. But I, I think that that focus within the book, and in fact, it's, in many ways, it's um, particularly prescient now when we do see that linkage between health and the environment um, with our economy. You know, that linkage, I think, is very, very important 
to bring uh, sorry to bring out into the future um, and to make sure that we keep coming back to it. So I think there are a number of insights actually in that book which are, are well worth um, bearing in mind, definitely. I was going to ask on that note, I mean, Keir talks during his leadership campaign um, about uh, talking like prioritizing uh, health um, and well-being uh, just as highly as GDP. Is that something that you guys have been talking about? Yeah, well, there, there are a whole, um, I think a whole number of uh, different initiatives trying to ensure that we have a much more sophisticated understanding of our economy and of well-being. And yes, that's something that I've discussed with Keir and with others. You know, I think there's a lot of, um, uh, uh, certainly of, a really informed and insightful uh, uh, expert opinion out there about how you can actually incorporate that into policy making. Um, interesting developments in New Zealand, for example, also in Labour-run Wales, incidentally, where um, they've taken that much more sophisticated approach. Um, and I think we are seeing that, you know, if, if we just focus on growth, which isn't sustainable, which isn't bringing everyone along with it, then actually you can have, you know, the kind of developments we've seen with living standards over the last 10 years, where we've seen, you know, enormous stagnation, huge numbers of people um, in very, very precarious situations, worse than that of their parents. Um, you know, so many working people in poverty, first time for generations that getting into work is not a route out of poverty. So we definitely need to be more sophisticated about this. Um, as well as MMT, obviously uh, Labour members often bring up universal basic income. So I've just one of the questions from that is, how seriously are you thinking about the gradual introduction of a UBI as a key component in reforming our blatantly unfair and toxic economic system? So I think our, our economic system uh, is um, not working as it should, but obviously social security isn't either. Um, I don't want to repeat uh, everything that, that Johnny said about this. Um, I think for me, one of the, the challenging aspects around the UBI debate is that there's so many different versions of what people call a UBI um, that actually it's very, very difficult to be totally clear. Um, I mean, if we look at the current situation where, uh, for example, you know, people who are 50 plus, maybe never been unemployed before, now expected to jump through all of those hoops in the job centre, showing they're actively seeking work when they may be living in a jobs desert currently because of what we've been talking about. Well, um, having the level of conditionality, the kind of degrading nature of that right now, um, uh, seems to me to be um, something that reduces the dignity of people very substantially. Now, some people would say that a shift towards that kind of a model others would say oh no it's not um if we're talking about uh, removing all social security from everyone and just having a single payment um i don't think that makes sense because i think we need to reflect the fact that you know as a party that's committed to equality and dealing with inequalities there are people in society who have caring responsibilities who may have different uh, reasons why they can't um, earn the same as others. You know, actually, our social security system should be dealing with some of those. Um, and if people want to say, well, you can just have social security on top of that payment, then of course we need to work out how we're going to pay for it. Um, I'd be very happy to engage in that debate, but I see that it's half past six. I suppose the only thing I would say is there may well be other things that we would want to be uh, paying for with that, you know, around um, dealing with the housing crisis, um, you know, problems with our NHS and other public services, enormous educational divides, etc. 
Um, so it's an interesting debate, but one where I think there's quite often a lot of baggage, I guess, that we need to cut through, really. Um, certainly with some versions of, of UBI, I, I don't think that they're what we should be promoting to, to deal with those inequalities. Okay. Um, I think I feel like you've got to go, but can I just ask one last question, um, which is from Jason, who's 15, apparently. So I'm going to excuse um, that it's quite blunt. And they, they basically ask you, how are you going to make sure people know who you are? <laughs> it's, it's blunt, but it's fair, because I've obviously not been um, a Westminster-based politician for a very long time. Um, I, I was based in the European Parliament for um, three years, particularly working on tax avoidance and reining in uh, the excesses of the financial system. But before that, for many, many years, I was a lecturer in higher education. So I haven't had that very long period in politics. Um, uh, some people might say that having some experience outside politics can help sometimes. I think that it can, but really I want to make use of any opportunity really that presents itself. I've been trying to get out and about across the UK as much as possible. Um, so, you know, if people have got ideas about what I should be doing around that, please, please let us know. I think it's really important that above all, people see that Labour's on their side, fighting for people's jobs, fighting for people's lives and for their livelihoods as well. Thank you so much for joining us for one of these events. Uh, I hope we'll do another one in the coming months or over the next year. That would be great. And just keep hearing from you. And um, thank you so much to everyone who asked questions. There were loads and loads who came in. So I'll pass some of those on as well after the event. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for everyone who's watching. And of course, we've got another In Conversation event next week. Uh, and that one's going to be with Jim McMahon. So uh, watch out on Labour List for that one as well. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thanks so much, everyone. Really appreciate you taking part. Thanks. Take care.